Hey everyone, Eric here. I'm excited to announce our newest show on investing at Turpentine, Sorcery by Molly O'Shea. Sorcery brings the conversations investors and founders have behind closed doors to light. Past episodes have featured Alex Kolodzic of AVC, Xander Oltman of Commodity Capital, and David Weisberg of 10X Capital, whom you might know from another Turpentine show. This is the show for investors by investors. We dive deep into topics like the significance of LPGP dynamics, portfolio construction, if SaaS is really dead, AI theses and predictions, and more. Check it out by searching Sorcery on any podcast platform today. If you want to replace the elite that you have today, what you need to do is you need to have a better elite. Mm-hmm. There's just the only one way out. If you don't like the current oligarchic elite um, that doesn't result in just mass death, the only way out is a superior elite. Okay, what would be a superior elite to the elite that we have today? Well, a bunch of things. So one is they would presumably have a set of ideas that would be better ideas because that would presumably be the whole point of doing this. They would then need a story that is a superior story, right? So it's sometimes called a political myth, right? Um, which is they would need a, a moral claim, right? That was able to legitimate their rule. They would need um, fashion status prestige, right? If you belong to our elite, you are a higher status, higher prestige person than if you belong to that yes. elite. And then they would need to build the kind of all, all these other things, the perpetuation method, the recruitment method, fun, you know, they yeah. would need funding. They would need a, an education system. Like they would need media organs, you know, for people who want to change the system. Like that is the way to do it. Now it's been done before and uh, it could be done again. Welcome to the first episode of Upstream. If we've seen anything the past few years, it's that ideas matter. Ideas have consequences. And most people don't know the foundations for the ideas that they hold. In this podcast, we'll outline those foundations. So you can ask yourself, what's upstream of what you truly believe? Today's guest is Mark Andreessen. The story of Mark's entrepreneurial investor journey has been told in many podcast episodes. So in this podcast, we explore Mark's intellectual and political journey, his education. In the mid-2010s, Mark realized that everything started to change. So he re-examined his understanding of how the world works through reading about the history of the left and the right. In this episode, we talk about what changed in the 2010s, what Mark learned from reading about the history and the left and the right, and what that means for what's to come next. We talk about how our modern elites function, why they all have the same opinions, and we offer advice for counter-elites looking to replace them. This was recorded a couple months ago when SBF and the Elon Twitter file saga were at their peak, but it's a timeless episode. You could replace SBF with AI doomers and still get the same episode today. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for being the first guest. Hey, awesome. Hey, Eric. Uh, great to be here. Great. You, uh, you recently tweeted about how 2015 shook your concept of how the world works. You tweeted about a, a reading journey 
uh, that, that you went on to understand what had changed. But first, I want to summarize so that the audience understands what exactly changed. Is, it, is a fair summary something like some of our major institutions, whether it's schools, media, uh, government institutions, Fortune 500, kind of all went hard left in unison, kind of indoctrinating a new morality and you know, censoring people who, who disagreed. Is, is that a fair summary or what really changed? Because this is before Trump, right? Like what, what really changed 2015? Yeah. So, you know, the hardest thing with this kind of question always is, right, how much does the world change versus how much do you change, right? And so you always kind of wonder, it's like, okay, how, if, if I were the person I was today and I relived, you know, 1980 again or 1996 again or, you know, 2008 again or whatever, would I have a totally different view on things? And I think that's, you know, that's an individual question. It's also a very interesting societal question, right? Because, you know, we live in a specific kind of media environment today. I often wonder, like, what would it have been like to live through the Bay of Pigs or the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Or Iran-Contra or, you know, the FDR administration or whatever, um, or World War II. You know, imagine living through World War II with modern social media, right? And the level, and the level of second guessing that would have taken place, you know, every, every, every step of the way. Right? Would, would the United States have ever entered World War II in an era of social media? Like, I, if you read the history of World War II, a very large percentage of the country was opposed to entering World War II, you know, and uh, up and up through the late 30s, so basically up until Pearl Harbor. And like, you know, would we would we have ever gotten involved? I don't know. It's really hard to kind of reconstruct, I think, these things historically. Um, you know, my lived experience, as the kids say, um, is that, uh, you know, things started changing pretty dramatically from at least the way I understood how the world worked, probably in 2012. Um, just a lot of people in authority started saying things that just didn't make any sense to me. Um, and people started acting in ways that I didn't think were, um, you know, I, that I, that I certainly didn't, didn't predict and didn't think would happen. You know, I think that I, you know, I lived the same uh, sequence of events as everybody else, but I think Trump winning the, I think there've been like basically like four big events. It's like Trump winning the nomination in 2015 and then winning the general election in 2016. And then there was like, you know, Charlottesville, you know, the George Floyd moment. And then there was January 6th. Like there was like three, four or five, six things in there, you know, that kind of caused, I think, both sides of the political spectrum, both halves of the American population to really start to act in really fundamentally different ways than at least I was used to. Basically, I lost all faith in my own ability to understand what was going on and just realized that basically all of my assumptions around how people behave, at least in politics and current events and social dynamics, basically are just wrong. You know, my, my approach to deal with it is to try to then kind of go back and kind of trace the ideas back and try to figure out kind of where I went wrong. Um, and that, that led me on this journey that you're referring to that the way I do that is I basically read my way back. Um, and I sort of read my way back in time and try to figure out when things actually started. And then it also caused me to kind of, I basically decided that I, I didn't understand either the left or the right. Like I didn't understand how Democrats were acting. I didn't understand how Republicans were acting. And so I decided to kind of read my way out in both directions, both all the way out, all the way out to the left, all the way to like Lenin and, and Marx and communism on the one hand, and then all the way out to the right on the other hand, and see if I could at least reconstruct a, a, a worldview for, for, you know, at least some sense of context for what's happening today. I, I heard there was this kind of critique of the, of the left, which is, hey, you, you can read your, your way back, but actually it's really just excuses for people want stuff. And, you know, we have this debate with uh, Richard Hinania of about um, how much do ideas matter versus just group, you know, groups of people and tribalism. And, and, um, and, and of course, the left and right changes their ideas over, over time, too. So your, what's your reaction um, and, and take on that? Yeah. So, there, I mean, there's a big overall kind of question of sort of theory of mind, right, which is how well does the right ever understand the left? How well does the right, the left ever understand the right? You know, there is some evidence, if you like read political science, there's some evidence that people on the right tend to understand people on the left better than vice versa. And the the theory there basically is like a lot of right-wing people used to be left-wing people. 
Yeah. Uh, right, right. People tend to move right as they go through their lives. Um, and so, um, you know, you maybe have a, have a memory, like a lot of neoconservatives or former Marxists, Marxists as an example. And so they, they've actually fully understood Marxism inside out. Uh, we'll talk about James Burnham, who's like a classic yeah. example of this, who actually was, was a very uh, active Marxist in the 20s and 30s communist. Um, you know, the question of whether ideas matter, you know, this is, a, this is one of the things I've been trying to kind of figure out and understand, which is like, you've got this kind of, you know, a lot of this happened around Trump, which is you, you've kind of got you've kind of got two things that kind of seem to run in parallel and seem to kind of affect each other, but it's not clear which is the dog and which is the tail. So one is like the sort of big mass movements of basically broad-based popular opinion. Um, and, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but like when broad-based popular opinion moves, it's usually not the result of an, you know, some sort of detailed intellectual argument, uh, right? It's not that you have 300 million, you know, people who read a, you know, a journal article, uh, you know, an academic journal article, and then I'll, you know, decide to change your mind on things. Like it, it's, it's, it's basically like, it's, you know, it's a big, emo it's an emotional surge, yeah. uh, right. Of some form. It's a, pri it's, it's a primal, it's a primal thing. It's, it's, um, you know, it's not, it's not particularly logical or rational, but it, but it's very deeply felt and very deeply believed. And, you know, and by the way, maybe, maybe very real. Um, and then there's this second channel, which is like the intellectuals, right? And sort of the, then there's like the intellectual superstructure on top of the movement. And, you know, for, for communism, that was, you know, obviously Marx and then Lenin, you know, all of their writings. Um, and then, you know, there's corresponding, you know, stuff on the, on the um, you know, on, on the right where people have written, you know, very important books over time. And then there's always this question like, okay, is it like the intellectuals, is it like the intellectual elite basically driving the popular change because basically the population is responding to ideas? You know, or is it the other way around? It's like, no, the people move and then intellectuals are like, well, you know, the people are moving. I am their leader. I must therefore get ahead of them. I must basically, you know, articulate a story as to why they're moving. So people, you know, down the road will think that it was it was I who caused it. Eric Hoffer talks about this. So the and, and Eric Hoffer, the sociologist in his book, The True Believer, he talks a lot about this. And so the, the true believer is about this sort of mass, this sort of mass movement of crowds. Hoffer argues that basically that the the driver is mass popular sentiment, that mass popular sentiment moves kind of as a beast in and of itself. And he he uses the term the true believer to kind of refer to somebody who's become part of a crowd, part of a mob, you know, on either side, by the way, this is true of communism, true of fascism and so forth. So it's not a political observation. It's a psychological observation. What Hoffer says is basically whenever there's a big surge in popular movement, there's always sort of the evolution or development of a set of intellectual ideas on top of that that basically serve to describe what's happened and sort of rationalize it and try to put it into an intellectual framework. And he said the reason you get those ideas because the movement needs to recruit the intellectuals. Um, and so and to recruit the intellectuals, you, you need to have ideas. And so you've got this like thin layer of intellectual content on the top that serves to recruit the intellectuals to the movement. And then you've got the demagoguery and kind of the mass movement underneath that's sort of non-rational non and more, more emotional. Maybe that's the case. I think Richard, if he were here, would probably agree with this. Um, you know, Richard, Richard's you know, general take, as I understand it, is that, you know, basically people respond to interests more than ideas. And so if, you know, people in the crowd think that they're going to be better off as a result of, you know, uh, action X, or if their enemies are going to suffer because of action X, that's a, that's a direct incentive and they respond to that. And the ideas are kind of these abstractions that intellectuals just kind of chase their tails on. Having said that, look, like Marx, you know, wrote, you know, Marx wrote these things, right? I mean, Marx wrote, you know, Das Kapital and the Communist Manifesto and so forth. And he wrote those like, you know, 150 years ago. And like China still uses them today, right? And Xi Jinping still talks about them all the time. And so, you know, Xi Jinping presumably at this stage wouldn't have to talk about that stuff if it wasn't important. And yet he does. And by the way, those same materials are taught in, you know, university today and are, you know, you would seem like they're having a pretty big impact on the world. Truth probably somewhere in the middle. Yeah, oppressor and oppressed language still uh, still still lives on today for sure. Big time. <laughs> so, you, so you read a, you know, a few dozen books about you know, understanding the left, un understanding the right. What sort of 
mental model on either side uh, kind of filled in the gap or helped you get a better sense for either what's happened or, or what's likely to happen in either movement? I think the, the sort of over, like if you go far back enough in history, basically if you go back and far back enough, if you go far back enough in history, basically everybody was like super right wing as compared to today. And I used to joke that, you know, it's just sort of like different things. If you go back 2,500 years, everybody was super right wing compared to today, you know, to the Greeks. Um, if you go back to the Romans, if you go back to, you know, the, the you know, Florence in the 1500s, it was like super right wing. By the way, if you go back to 2015, it was super right super right wing as compared to today. And in fact, there are things that two weeks ago, you know, would strike us as super right wing. And so, so, you know, generally speaking, everything in the past was much more further to the right than it is today. Why is that is because sort of the, 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 the long run kind of foundation of human civilization has been hierarchy and order. Um, and, uh, you know, if you go back to sort of any previous, you know, society, you know, they, they, you know, they all have some conception of natural order. They all have some conception of, you know, you know, rulers and ruled. They have some conception of, you know, aristocracy and, and, and proletariat or, or so forth. And, and, you know, hierarchy and order are sort of inherently right-wing ideas. If you believe that, then basically the left is a reaction to the right, right? So the, the, left, the, the, the sort of right is the original, original thing, and then the left sort of emerged over time in a reaction to it. And, you know, starting with maybe, you know, call it Judaism and Christianity, and then sort of flowing forward into, you know, kind of liberal democracy, and, and then ultimately socialism and communism, you know, there's sort of all these sort of left-wing movements over the last 2,000 years have this sort of critique, and it's a critique of the right, and it's a critique of hierarchy. It's a critique of unfairness, right? It's a critique of, you know, some people have more than other people. You know, some people have more power than other people. Some people have more money than other people, and that there's an unfairness to that. And, you know, there's some, ultra, you know, there's some altruism instinct in the human spirit that doesn't like that. And so, as a consequence, you know, the, the left basically says the existing order, the existing hierarchy is unfair. And so therefore we are going to tear it down and replace it with something that's more egalitarian, uh, something that has more, more fair outcomes. Um, you know, Christianity did that from a morality standpoint. Uh, and then, uh, you know, so socialism basically attempted to do that from, from, from an economic standpoint. And we, we kind of live in the shadow, you know, maybe of, uh, of those two great movements. Eric here. We'll continue after the break. But first, a word from our sponsors. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. Get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. I believe in SecureFrame so much that I invested in it and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo and mention Upstream during your demo to get 20% off your first year. Now, more than ever, startup founders need a safe place to put their cash. Mercury protects your money and also provides the streamlined user experience that great founders expect. Through partner banks and their sweep networks, Mercury offers up to $5 million in FDIC insurance, which is 20 times the per bank limit. They also make it easy to invest any cash above the FDIC insured amount in a money market fund. 100,000 startups trust Mercury with their finances. I've been a happy Mercury customer and have found their team incredibly helpful and responsive. They even got an important wire out of purgatory on Christmas Eve. After all, your Christmas is my opportunity. Visit mercury.com to get started. Mercury is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group and Evolve Bank and Trust, members FDIC. Marketer Hire is one of my favorite resources for startups looking to hire marketers. With thousands of pre-vetted marketers across a dozen roles, Marketer Hire matches you to your perfect marketer in 48 hours. Whether you need help with growth marketing, SEO, lifecycle, content, or any other aspect of your marketing strategy, Marketer Hire has you covered. So if you're a founder looking for top-notch marketing talent to help grow your startup, head over to marketerhire.com to find your perfect match. Sign up with referral code UPSTREAM and you'll get $1,000 credit on your first hire. There's a certain kind of person who says, hey, um, 
yes, this movement, you know, starting 2015, let's say it's gone too far, but it has good intentions and there's been some, some good things that have come from it. And it's an important direction and history has a direction and you want to be on the right, right side of history is the counter to that, that, you know, Hey, good intentions have led to some horrible things or that it doesn't even, you know, help the people it aims to help. Like, because that, that's a very common position. There's a cliche for a reason, which is the, the road to hell is paved with good intention. And this, again, is like a, a reading of history thing. Like if, if you, you know, if you read accounts of like even really horrible people in history, like they, I think they thought they were doing the right thing. Yeah. Right. I, you know, the, another cliche that I'll use a lot is, you know, everybody's the hero of their own story. And then psychologists will tell you this, like everybody's really good at manufacturing an internal narrative for why they're the good guy and everybody else is the bad guy. Um, and so I have an internal narrative that says I'm doing the right thing for my people. I'm doing the right thing for all of humanity. Right. I mean, I mean, you see it playing out today in the sort of FTX thing. Like I'm, you know, I, I say I'm doing, you know, the right thing for the future of humanity. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's the thing like the, you know, these, the horrible people who, who they, they thought they were doing the right thing, like in, in their framework of morality, their motivating force, their feeling, I think more often than not was they, they were doing the right thing. So clear, so clearly it's not, it's not enough, right. To, for, for somebody to feel that way. Then there's the unintended side effects, you know, kind of aspect to it, which is, you know, it, it's just, it's really hard to establish cause and effect. I am going to change society the following ways. It is going to generate deterministically the good outcomes that I hope for. And it is not going to demonstrate the unintentional, you know, bad consequences that, that, that you know, that I, that I would have been horrified about had I, had I found out about them ahead of time. And, you know, just in general, right, a, a big problem with social engineering broadly um, is that it's, it's very easy to both, you know, kind of blow it on the positive side and then also have a lot of negative consequences. And, you know, history is full of those. The, the picture that, that, that Nietzsche tells, uh, the story that Nietzsche tells, I think, is, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty good on this. The term Nietzsche uses for what we're talking about is sort of, he's, Nietzsche says there are two kinds of morality. Fundamentally, they're sort of master morality and slave morality. And when he says that, he doesn't mean, it, you know, it, there's a form of that. It's like literally morality of the masters, morality of the slaves. But he actually means, when he uses those terms, he actually means the concept more broadly. He means uh, the morality of the masters as taken by people who aren't even literal slave masters, but like people generally who who have sort of inherited the morality of the of the, of the master, even if even if they don't literally have slaves. And then similarly, he says slave morality is the morality of the slave carried forward by people who are no longer slaves. Right. And this is true, right? The original form of social order was masters and slaves. Like that that is kind of how everything was structured. You know, you go back four thousand years, that's how everything worked. And so like that that sort of set this sort of fundamental world battle battle in place. Master morality is very unnatural for those of us in a Christian, you know, Judeo-Christian world, because the Judeo-Christian world, according to Nietzsche, is the world of, of slave morality. You know, what he basically says is in a, in, a, in a pre-Christian world, morality basically was strong equals good. Um, and so if you were strong, if you were in charge, if you won, right, if you were the victor, that was good. Um, and if you were weak, if you were yeah. the slave, if you lost, right, if your people got destroyed, that was bad. And so that, that's the master morality framework. Um, you know, we moderns don't accept that. We have a totally different view, right? Um, which, is, which, which Nietzsche refers to as slave morality, which is basically, no, most people in life are not masters. Most people, you know, if it's a choice between master and slave, most people are slaves. Historically, most people were slaves. And actually, you know, the majority of people are slaves. They're abused by the masters and we should be on the side of the slaves. And that, you know, that is basically Judeo, the Judeo-Christian Judeo ethic. We should be on the side of the weak, the downtrodden, the disadvantaged, right? The you know the marginalized, right? You you know you hear you hear these exact same concepts you know playing playing out today. Yeah. 
you know, if you object to living in the world that we live in and you're like, wow, I wish I could go back to the Roman Empire or go back to the Greek Empire or go back to, you know, the Egyptians or whatever. It's like, well, boy, like life really sucked for most people then, too. Right. Like that was, you know. And so it's hard to kind of say, like, go all the way back to, to, to Roman times. At, at, at the same time, you do have to ask the question of like, OK, do you want to live in a world of like pure slave morality? You know, do you, do you want to reach the point where basically all you're venerating is weakness? Right. Where basically all, all you're doing is basically trying to achieve, you know, full equality of outcome, full egalitarianism. And you're trying to basically, you know, basically rank the weak all the way up the totem pole and rank the strong all the way down on the other end. And, you know, historically that, you know, that that's where communism goes wrong. Right. Um, you know, that communism is sort of slave morality fully realized as a system. And of course, that, you know, that that leads to catastrophe. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. You probably want some blend. You probably want like, you know, basically on the one hand, respect for like merit and, and sort of, um, you know, achievement and success um, on the one hand. But you also want like some sense of fairness and sharing. On the other hand, do they yeah. balance? Are, are they like in thermostatic equilibrium and do they kind of swing back and forth, but they kind of come around to some sort of middle ground? Or, you know, do they go pathological? Um, and a society that tries to reclaim master morality ends up being the Nazis and a society that goes all the way to slave morality ends up being the Soviet Union. And they aren't actually thermostatic. And you actually have to make a choice at the end of the day, you know, which one is worse and you have to steer society in the other direction. And I, you know, I don't know the answer. Um, I think the question is a very live question because there are a lot of forces at work, at least in the West right now, that want to push us much harder in the direction of slave morality. And generally, that experiment ends poorly. Um, we, we seem determined to repeat it. it. It's interesting. I mean, if we're trying to reconcile the two, it, it seems that we have strong brake pedals um, or a strong immunity on the on the master morality side, um, you know, ability to hold back strong men um, or ability to, you know, take care of them, whereas we, we have less immunity on people kind of being manipulative on the on the slave morality side to, to get what they want because we do care about compassion and, and, and kindness, good intentions so much. You mentioned it's a live question. I mean, er, er, uh, earlier today, Elon just tweeted that wokeness is a is a is a mind virus and it's the it's the most important problem. If I was to parse that or, or steel man that, I, I would say it's like it's almost this meta problem by which you can't uh, solve other problems. You know, if you have uh, kind of excess slave morality, uh, making our institutions dysfunctional, making us turn on each other, uh, et, et cetera. Yeah, it's like, you know, can, can you ever be too fair? Can you ever be too nice? Can you ever be too nice, you know, to the downtrodden? Can you ever be, you know, too determined to address injustice? Like, is that possible? And a lot of people would say, no, you, you can't. You, you can always do more. You can always be more fair. You can always, you know, have more equality. You know, again, you know, that 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 was the story of the communists. Like, that, that was the proposition of communism in the economic realm. And, and you know, like, we, we you know, we saw how that ended. I just asked, uh, I've just been running experiments with chat, G chat GDP, G uh, sorry, chat GPT, the, the, the open AI thing, you know, it, it actually does it actually gives a pretty fair up description. You ask it about fascism and it actually does kind of a really good description of fascism and, you know, kind of notes that it like doesn't end well. Yeah. And then you ask it to describe communism and it does this very interesting thing where it describes communism and then it says at the end, it says, and then it says, now in fairness, communism uh, has been implemented to varying levels of success. <laughs> right? It's like, well. <laughs> You know, hmm, like, uh, okay, you know, and of course, what that's, what that's reflecting is like, you know, you know, nobody in OpenAI decided that that would be the answer, I don't think, you know, what, what happened yeah. was OpenAI is trained on the corpus of, of, of written human knowledge. And generally speaking, a lot of people who've written about politics for the last 100 years have been a little bit soft on communism. And that kind of reflects its way through the, uh, the training data. Um, the, the book that had the biggest impact uh, for this question on me, this question of like, can you have sort of a morality of compassion and redressing injustice and achieving equality. Like, let's, you know, it's called, you know, sort of egalitarianism as, as an ethic. 
um, you know, whether it's, 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 you know, religious in the form of Christianity or whether it's economic in the form of, you know, uh, let's call it progressivism, does that always become pathological? So, you know, the strong argument that that becomes pathological is James, James Burnham, uh, who we'll talk about it probably a fair amount. Um, but, uh, James Burnham wrote three, you know, I think really important books. The third book he wrote, which has a very aggressive title called Suicide of the West, which kind of gives away his answer, is basically a full undressing of, we call it liberalism and progressivism, you know, sort of as, you use sort of as pseudonyms um, or uh, synonyms. And, you know, he makes a strong argument. He wrote this, the book in 1964. Uh, he wrote the book having been a, such a committed communist in the 20s and 30s that he actually was a personal friend of Leon Trotsky and worked with Trotsky for years and like argued with Trotsky at great length for a very long time. So, you know, he's a guy who definitely knew the left and knew communism and, and socialism really well. And what he basically said in the book was he said, actually, sort of the left has a fatal flaw and the fatal flaw to your exactly to your point, the fatal flaw is there's no governor, right? There, there, there's no limiter on how much compassion you can have. There's no limiter to how much you, know, you can try to achieve equality. There's no limiter to how much, you know, you can try to overthrow hierarchy and order um, and get to, uh, you know, full egalitarianism. And so, and so he basically says in the book, you know, as a consequence, liberalism will always become progressivism. Progressivism will always become socialism. Socialism will always become communism. And you will always end up, you know, basically, you know, in, in pursuit of utopia, you will always create, you know, hell on earth. You know, the 20th century, like, you know, there's, I don't know what it was, like 80 societies or whatever, the course of the 20th century tried different versions of communism and kind of all got the same result, notwithstanding OpenAI um, or uh, ChatGPT. Um <laughs> You know, I, you know, the counterargument, the steel man counterargument would be, you know, look, most European economies today and the American you know, system are, you know, they're, they're left wing in a lot of ways, you know, from a historical standpoint. But, you know, they're, they're, they're hardly, you know, we're not, the, we're not, in fact, the Soviet Union, it's, it's not full communism. You know, since he read the book, that hasn't literally played out in the West. Yeah. You know, there are people in national office who, you know, do definitely seem to have that vision. So, um, you know, I would say the jury's still out. Uh, if Eric Weinstein or Sam Harris or Yashamunk were, were here, they would say, hey, no, post-World War II, we had this golden era of, of, of liberalism um, where um, we were able to, to keep things in check and we just need to get back to that. And, and if Peter Thiel were, were here, he would say that's like, uh, you know, the communist saying, you know, real liberalism, real communism has, has never been tried. Um, and it's a, it's a pipe, pipe dream. Is that time period an anomaly or, or, or how, how do we, how do we make, make sense of it? Why, why is... Uh, why is, you know, going back a, uh, a pipe dream? Well, I think any modern leftist would say that was also the era of peak, you know, racism, sexism, homophobia, <laughs> right? Like, you know, that was the Mad Men era, right? Um, and so that was the era in which, like, you know, basically white men were running around doing whatever they wanted and, you know, women were oppressed and gay people were oppressed and black people were oppressed. And, you know, so, you know, it, it, I always find it interesting whenever anybody on the left argues that we should go back to the 1950s, 1960s, because that does not seem to be a prevailing view on the, <laughs> on the left. You know, th then there's the economic explanation of the sort of American kind of, you know, ascendance um, in the second half of the 20th century. And the, I think the economic explanation is very simple, which is, you know, World War II, you know, the, the, every other industrialized society on, on the face of the planet was bombed into rubble, right, in World War II, either, you know, because they, you know, started a war that they shouldn't have, um, like the Germans, or because they, you know, were on the receiving end of it, like the Brits. You know, not only did we set up nukes in Japan, like we firebombed all the cities and burned them to the ground, right? So, like, there really was very little like industrial capacity in the West, you know, as of, you know, circa 1945. Now, you know, Germany and Japan and other countries rebuilt and started doing, you know, really well again in the 1970s, 1980s. But like, it was like a 30, 40 year journey to get those countries really back up on their feet as modern industrial economies. And so the U.S., you know, we, we had a, all of us trained in tech are trained to never use the word monopoly, but, um, you know, instead we just say robust market share. <laughs> um, <laughs> we had a, yeah. uh, you know, the U.S. had a robust market share of like global manufacturing, I, I think in large part, because there just were not alternatives at the time. 
you know, growth covers up a lot of sins. Um, you know, maybe we got away with a lot of dysfunction um, because we were just growing so fast economically. I mean, you, you mentioned a handful of people who might pine for the 50s and 60s. I mean, almost nobody does, right? They either pine for like the 30s, right? Um, you know, they want to go back to the full New Deal, right? Or they, you know, pine for an even earlier era. People on the right, you know, will sometimes pine for an earlier era of free enterprise, right? Like, Free the, like the the heyday of free enterprise in America was probably right you know probably something like eighteen seventy to nineteen you know twenty nine probably so eighteen seventies eighteen eighties through the nineteen twenties um, it was the what's called now the second the second industrial revolution so it was the the sort of incredibly transformative time in technology with the you know creation of everything you know the electric power and um, you know all modern communication networks telegraph telephone radio television you know, automobiles, um, you know, airplanes. And so it was this incredibly fertile time in terms of technological development. And then it was pre-New Deal, which means the national economic system was much more laissez-faire. Um, you know, free, free market, like libertarians would like to go back to that era. Um, you know, most most modern Americans, you know, would not. Yeah, maybe, Yasha, maybe you'd want to go back to the 90s or something. We're, we're having a lot of social progress, but it, there's, um, you know, still free speech is popular. And, and there's a question as to whether you can take the the good without the excess you know well then there's the other kicker on that on that exact kind of argument which is yeah but the 90s got you got you everything that followed the 90s right like so if everything was so great in the 90s why did everything go so wrong in the 2000s to the 2010s yeah. right it's the same question by the way go further back if everything was so great in the 50s and 60s why did you get the 70s and 80s yeah right and so so apparently like these prior and look the the, the glory of america is its dynamism right it, it you know we, we change as a society and culture like way more way more than most um, and so that's, that's the strength, but like, you know, every preceding historical period apparently was on very shaky footing because it didn't last very long. Um, right. And in fact, it was not very long until there were lots and lots of people who thought it actually in retrospect, whatever happened 20 years earlier was like very deeply evil, you know, whatever conditions created, whatever golden age you want to you know, hold out there, they, they didn't last. Right. And, and, and in fact, you know, they, they presumably sparked reactions and changes that led to the, you know, the worst environment we're in today. So it's. You know, I, I think it's hard to find stable. It's hard to find stable ground, and so it's, and it, because it's hard to find stable ground, it's also hard to have that much faith in the sort of so-called thermostatic model. It's yeah. hard to have, you know, because what a lot of people will say is, "Oh, fine and good." And there's these constant arguments and right, left, and this and that, and interventionist and and isolationist, and there's all these kinds of poles, right? Nationalist and globalist and so forth. There's all these kind of different axes of politics and social change. Um, you know, merit slash you know equality of you know opportunity versus quality of outcome and so forth. So you can. You can kind of imagine like a graph that has all these different axes, and then basically the pendulum kind of swings all around the graph, but always comes back to the center somehow. And it's like, well, maybe, right? Or maybe what we're just talking about is like, you know, massive survivorship bias, right? You know, 100 other societies in the last 200 years like went badly off track in horrible ways, right? Um, we're the one that didn't, <laughs> right? The yeah. dice came up in the right order for us. Congratulations, you know, great. You know, we, we won at the roulette table 30 times in a row. And again, the sweep of history, right? It's just like there are so many societies that thought they had things figured out and then everything went horribly wrong. I, th I think it's hard to just assume that everything will be okay just because it has been so far. Yeah. You mentioned Burnham. Uh, uh, let's get into Burnham. You mentioned The Suicide of the West. Uh, let's talk about his other book, The Managerial Revolution, because it's it's related to what's happening right now. There's been this kind of you know underground I idea for a while. You know, some uh, I think Eric Weinstein calls it the gated institution complex. You know, some people call it the cathedral. It's the idea that... Uh, the government, uh, academia, media, some corporations work together in in kind of um, you know in a decentralized way to achieve a certain political goal. So, so how do we make sense of this? 
Yeah, so the, the first book is called The Managerial Revolution, um, and it was written in the early 40s. It was written in like 1940, and it's, it's actually interesting because it was written a couple things historically about it. So one is it was written shortly after Burnham had been a, an actual communist, um, and so he was trying to actually still work his way out of communism at that point. It was also written at the height of World War II, and it was actually written when it actually wasn't clear who was going to win. Um, and so there's a bunch of sections in the book that are like, well, you know, if America wins X and if Germany wins, you know, boy, you know, that'll mean a totally different set of things. <laughs> so his thesis in the book basically is as follows, which basically it's it, basically what he says is, look, um, world systems like governments and industries and human affairs, you know, basically up through the 19th century were basically small scale. By, by any by, by my understanding, they were small scale. It's just like, you know, population levels were low. States were small. You know, businesses were small. And even if you had like a car company or whatever, like it just wasn't that big, right? When Ford, when Henry Ford had Ford Motor Company, like they, they just didn't make that many cars. There weren't that many people who could afford cars. You sort of had this world of, you know, preceding forms of social order, which is like monarchies or aristocracies or bourgeois, you know, capitalism, free market capitalism or whatever, where basically there was always like a principal in charge, right? So like the king is in charge or like the, you know, Henry Ford, the owner of the company is in charge. Like, you know, the idea of like a business is a sole proprietorship, like, you know, the owner of the corner store owns the corner store, the owner of the car company owns, owns the car company. And then what Burnham says basically is in the 20th century, as a result, actually, of the second industrial revolution, basically, the 20th century is a century of scale. Um, and so all of a sudden, the countries get really big, the populations get really big, um, the, um, the companies get really big, the industries get really big, the technologies get really complicated. And what he said basically is like the era of just a Henry Ford running his car company is basically over. And he said, instead, what happens is all big companies are going to get run not by the owner of the company, but by a professional class of managers. And, you know, the literal form of that is literally people who have gone to like, you know, management school and gotten like MBAs or more broadly in his definition, it's basically people with advanced technical skills, you know, sort of technical managerial skills. Um, and so he says, basically, all the companies are going to get run by these managers. Um, all governments are going to get run by managers. And, you know, this was the heyday. He saw this happening because this is the heyday of the New Deal. You know, FDR enormously expanded the scope of the federal government, right, for, for better or for worse, and then brought in this, this new class of person to kind of run the federal government, which were Burnham's managers. And then Burnham said, look, you've got like, you know, World War II is this like three-way fight basically between, you know, the three big political systems of the 20th century, which basically is like fascism, you know, in the form of, of Germany and, and Italy and, and, and Japan, um, you know, communism in the form of the Soviet Union, which was our ally, even though Stalin, you think, was actually kind of a bad guy. <laughs> um, and then liberal democracy, right, which is sort of its full flowering and sort of its progressive form under, under FDR. And he said, basically, those, those three systems obviously have big differences, but they have one big thing in common. They're, they're all managerial in nature, right? Mm -hmm. the, the communists, the Soviet central planners are going to run the entire country from Moscow. The you know, Nazi central planners are going to run you know, the entire country, the entire economy you know, from, from the, uh, you know, from Berlin. And then in the U.S., you know, FDR is going to run America, right, with his, with, with his managers. You know, you could say this is good or bad. It doesn't, it doesn't even matter if it's good or bad. He says it's necessary. He says the, the reality is all these systems are too big to be run by, you know, the older model of, you know, the Henry Ford, the owner or whatever. Uh, like, oh, these systems are all gigantic. Like, they are all gigantic. Like, all countries from here on out are going to be huge. All industries are going to be complicated. All businesses are going to be complicated. And then he basically identifies what, you know, today we would call the principal agent problem. Right. Which is um, basically what this means is, and you, you see this with companies, right? If the owner of the company is not running the company, right, then there is a separation of ownership and control, right? A separation of ownership and management. And then you're going to have basically the creation of what he called the managerial class, which will be the people who are basically going to be actually running the company. 
And then as a consequence of this, you know, ownership will tend to then get dispersed, right? And ownership will become very weak. And, and that's, that's what's happening. I mean, think of any public company today, you know, take any of these companies, take General Motors. Um, how many owners of General Motors are there? There are millions of owners of General Motors because there are millions of people who own General Motors stock. How many managers are there at General Motors? There's, you know, the top 10 executives that run the, you know, there's a CEO, the top 10 executives, the top 200 managers in that, in that company run the company. Like, who's more in charge? Of General Motors, right? The owners or the managers? And the answer is clearly the managers. By the way, same thing politically, right? Who runs the United States, right? Who runs the United States government? Is it the voters or is it, you know, Congress and the White House? <laughs> it's, you know, it's the, the voters are dispersed. There's, you know, whatever, 300 million of us were dispersed. We individually, none of us have any basically influence or control at all. So therefore, what he says, he, he doesn't use this term, I don't think, but the result is like basically the principal agent problem becomes dominant in everything, right? And so it doesn't matter how like well-intentioned people are, whatever. It's like the, the, the principal agent thing, the principal agent problem is right. The people, you know, the principal who owns something delegates, you know, running it to somebody else. Those people have very different interests. And if your principals, your owners are dispersed and your managers are concentrated, then the managers are going to end up with all the power. And, th and that's basically what, what's happened. Yeah, well, one, one thing I want to follow up real quick on that thread is this, this question of a decade ago or a time ago, you could have. Uh, Republicans bought sneakers too, so to speak. Elites who control these institutions catered to both sides, and they maybe had a bit more, you know, political or intellectual diversity with, within them. But but something happened where, first off, you could also be apolitical. There was a certain time, but politics kind of infested every area of life, and now it, it it's it's less about catering to both sides and more about catering to one specific side. And so I'm curious, what what, what changed there? Bernard would say two things. So the first to build on managerialism, what Bernard would say basically is the managers get to the managers get to decide the politics of the company because they can, right? Like the, because the managers have all the control, even though they don't own the company, because they have all the control, if they decide they want to take the company in one political direction and and, and against another political direction, they can just do that because who's going to stop them, right? Right. Principal agent problem. If you like pulled all the owners, right, and said, do you want the company to do this? The owners would probably say, no, this is a bad idea because to your point, like we're going to cut off half the market. Right, we're going to sell less sneakers as a result. The managers are like, I don't care. Like, why would the managers care? They don't care. The owners can't remove them. And then the the, the company example of this is very interesting because what you actually have the, the problem is even worse than we've been describing, right? Because the problem is you have the principal agent problem playing out at the level of the management of the company. You have the exact same problem playing out at the level of the actual ownership of the company, uh, in, in the sense of um, uh, the the big money management firms, and in particular the big index funds the sort of the BlackRock and, and, and its competitors, right? And so what you have with like the Fortune 500 today, you know, just structurally is you have, you know, generally these sort of woke left-wing management teams, you know, basically exploiting the principal agent problem to their benefit. Um, and then you've got these woke progressive um, investment firms that are aggregating up huge amounts of money from, you know, millions of dispersed shareholders. And then, you know, it's actually really funny, right? Because it's like, these, these, index, these index firms, their entire business is predicated on the idea that they do not have the competence to pick which companies to invest in. Um, and so therefore, they're going to take your money as a you know, future retiree, and they're going to invest it in, in the entire index companies. But yet somehow, the managers at the index firm are so enlightened that, they have, that they're completely qualified to re-engineer society um, and, and, and to have a set of political views that may have nothing to do with your political views as an investor, but they are, they are qualified to figure out how to re-engineer society. And you know, this, is, this has led to you know, ESG and, and all these other things. Um, and, and so you've got basically these two actual classes of managers. You've got the corporate executives on the one hand, and you've got the professional investors on the other hand, you know, who essentially are, have, have both basically just taken power from their dispersed owners just because they can. Maybe, maybe Elon stops that. Or, yeah, or, yeah, okay. 
So basically, okay, so what we've sort of described is sort of, again, back, back to Burnham, we described sort of capitalism post-1940 or something like. What Burnham says in the book, there are two kinds of capitalism. Everybody thinks it's the same, they're not. There's two very different kinds. There's what he called bourgeois capitalism, which was the Henry Ford kind, which is the owner of the company runs the company. That's sort of the classic, right? And then there's managerial capitalism, which is this thing where the principal agent problem kicks in and managers run the company, even against the wishes of the owners. Basically, what venture capital and private equity are is they're sort of the return of bourgeois capitalism into an economic system that's almost entirely managerial. And, 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 and the reason it makes sense to have like venture capital and startups in Burnham's framework to, to bring back some level of bourgeois capitalism, right, is basically that managerial capitalism, it has its, it has its advantages. Like, they're, they're, you know, remember Burnham's point, like it is necessary. Like you do need like highly trained professional technical, you know, managers to run these giant enterprises, right? But, you know, it has its problems. We've identified one of the problems, which is this sort of political thing that happens. Another problem of managerial capitalism, I would argue, is it doesn't innovate very well. Companies run by professional managers don't, don't tend to innovate very well. Why don't they innovate very well? Well, the kinds of people who become professional managers are not innovators, because if they were, they wouldn't do that. They would be off inventing products and starting their own companies, right? And so, and so you know, we do that, you know, we do, we do that every day. You, you, you've done that in your career. Um, you know, we're, you know our, what, what do our companies all have in common? You know, it's basically there's somebody, you know, there's a person or a very small founding team of people who own, you know, when, uh, in, on day one, 100% of the business, but even, even after they, you know, get it fully financed, they still own a lot of the business. They often actually have, you know, voting control. You know, again, they have bundled accountability, responsibility, authority in the old model. Like Henry Ford, you know, if you brought Henry Ford back, you know, if you, if you were able to teleport Henry Ford into our era, you know, he would look at a modern high-tech startup and he would say, that's just like Ford Motor Company was when I ran it. Like, that's the model. And then he would look at modern, you know, Ford Motor Company, he'd say, holy Lord, like, I can't believe, like, what, what happened, right? Like, I, I, you know, and Ford Motor Company may be a very well-run managerial company, but it's not run anywhere close to how Henry Ford right, would, have, would have run it. So anyway, yeah, so that takes us to Elon. And of course, what Elon is, is he is, he is the fully realized, you know, Henry Ford, Howard Hughes, right? You know, one of these kind of peak bourgeois capitalists. He is the best, you know, the best, you know, kind of uh, example of this bourgeois capitalism model that we've had in, in our, you know, society for, for I think, decades. And you, and you see it playing out with Twitter. He's just like, I own it, right? It's like, I bought the entire company. Um, I am completely in charge. Um, I am going to completely harvest the payoff, right, from my success if I make it work. And I'm going to lose all the money of my own money if it doesn't work. Um, I am attaching my money to it. I'm attaching my reputation to it, right? Like, I'm putting my time into it. Like, I'm not delegating. Like, there's no professional class of managers at Twitter. Like, he's, like he's, running, he's running the company himself, right? It's bringing back this old model. It's bringing back into a world in which the companies he's competing with and many other companies, like, generally just, like, don't run like that anymore. So, yeah, th th I think it's great. Like, I think we should bring back as much bourgeois capitalism as we can. Now, Burnham would argue, fine, Mark, that's great, but you're just going to recreate the problem, right? Which is, because you're, you're going you're gonna to birth all these companies, they're going to be run by the founders for a while, and then at some point, guess what? They're going to get big and complicated, and the professional managers are going to take over, and you're going to just recreate the problem. And I'm like, okay, my answer would be, okay, fine, but like, that's a problem for 20 years yeah, from now. Better than we have now. Yeah, let's, I, let's, do, let's do what we can for now. I, I see Elon running um, a few experiments, uh, you know, more experiments in the past few weeks have been started than maybe in the past few years. Some of them include, um, you know, Elon showing that you as a company uh, owner, you don't have to be kind of bullied or pressured by sort of activists within your company, you can actually fight back and, and, and maybe win. Um, and that is showing a model to, to CEOs of, of, of what's possible. I think he's uh, presenting a model of you don't have to be externally bullied either. I think we had an era in tech 
you know, you could, companies like Uber or other companies that kind of didn't necessarily apologize, or I guess they did apologize and kind of conceded the moral high ground, whereas Elon is fighting back on, on, a more, on moral terms, actually saying, you know, we are more pure than the people who are attacking us and winning to, to some extent. I also think he's presenting a model of institutional reform, whereas there, there's been, been this idea that you, these institutions that have been captured, you can't reform them. You just have to start, start new ones. And maybe the situation is so bad, actually, if you fight, you kind of empower the winners anyways, and you have to, let's just wait until it's a better time to, to push back. And Elon's not waiting. And so we're going to learn so much for, for, from these experiments. It's like the parlor game thing, which is like, what would you do if you owned company X, right? And it's always <laughs> this like hypothetical kind of, you know, parlor game yeah. thing. It's, it's always a form of question I always ask, because I'm trying to get to like, what, what substantively is the right thing to be done? You know, in Elon's case, he's just like, oh, you know, screw I, I am literally actually going to own it, right? And then I'm actually going to do all those things. So um, every other CEO who's at least, you know, conscious uh, in the industry is looking at, um, you know, is, is watching Elon very carefully right now. I just got an investor relations readout from a company. It's, it's simply, a, I bring it up because it's a readout of feedback from their investors. It's a public company. And so it's feedback from their investors. Um, and there's, there's a section in the readout called the Elon effect. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. And, and it's exactly what you think is it's like, OK, this guy seems to be able to run this company on like 20 percent of the headcount. Right. And so basically, what are you going to do? Right. And, and again, the significance here is, you know, that was that data is a little bit stale now. Um, so that was probably 30 days in that they, that, you know, that they that they had those meetings where somebody said, you know, the Elon effect. You know, I think, honestly, I mean, at least in private conversations, a lot of both uh, CEOs and investors I talk to you know, are very, um, you know, much hoping um, that everything plays out great because they're, they're hoping that he's presenting a yeah. playbook for how to run these companies. Totally. Um, uh, this is a way that it can be done. It, you know, it, it, it does rely on having somebody actually having that level of power, right, who is in that level of control. And look, he's, you know, dealing with all the different constituents he's dealing with, but like, at least he's not dealing with like public, you know, he's not arguing with BlackRock. Right. right. Like, you know, there's a whole set of people he normally would have to deal with, uh, kind of the CEOs normally have to deal with who he just doesn't have to deal with because he literally owns the company. And so, yeah, look, maybe it's a model. Like maybe if, you know, maybe a lot more people literally do what he's doing, which is to your point, they buy these companies and reboot them and re 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 kind of reform them. And that would be a big change. And then, you know, maybe just on the margin, maybe this changes how public companies are run, right? Maybe this is a little bit of the reinvention, you know, maybe this is a little bit of the rediscovery of this. If we bring back some of the spirit of bourgeois capitalism while still retaining, you know, some of the advantages of managerialism, you know, yeah. aspirationally, you could, you know, say maybe, maybe that's a possibility. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I remember Stripe laid off like 13% uh, thir of its workforce. Uh, you know, Stripe is a credible company, of course. And then a number of companies followed suit with kind of exactly the same amount of, of the workforce. So it's just... Yeah, you need one example, and then thirteen uh, percent. This is not cracking on Stripe. Just the general trend that I've that yes. I've observed. Yeah. So the third. It's always this funny thing. It's like thirteen percent. Why is it thirteen percent? Well, because it feels like it should be at least ten percent. Um, <laughs> but like, boy, fifteen percent sounds painful. Yeah. Whereas you know, Elon's like, yeah, eighty percent. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. Um, like the difference in magnitude between third. I mean, you know this, but like thirteen percent yeah. to eighty percent. Like, there's a spread. Yes. And I, I, yeah, I know it all too well. Uh, unfortunately. Um, moving away from um, from Twitter, but still st st uh, on Elon for a second, because he also presents a new model for how to be a billionaire. Over the past decade, during some of the most ex excesses of, of what's been going on, people say, where have the billionaires been? Wh why haven't they stepped up to, to stop it? And as it turns out, maybe, maybe some of them have been uh, implicitly uh, or explicitly uh, supporting it. And it feels like there's this kind of uh, monoculture for, uh, uh, for how billionaires are supposed to act and, and the views they're supposed to have and the work they're supposed to do, and the way their organizations are supposed to set up and what they're supposed to do. 
talk a l- little bit, even in the abstract, about kind of the pressures that that face this class and and why you know Elon or maybe something like Teal is just so different from how how this group all all acts. Why isn't there more diversity am- among this class? Yeah, so this goes to Bernie's third book. So we'll now we'll, we'll go to the third book, which is uh, the Machiavellians, um, which is probably the you know the, the the most important of the bunch. So. You know, the, Ma- the Machiavellians is a book all about kind of, the sh- sh- it's about the structure of politics and society. So it's not partisan. It's not really arguing right versus left. It's, it's, a, it's a structural argument. And one of the key concepts that sort of pops right out of the Machiavellians is this sort of concept of, of oligarchy. And he basically says, look, there, there are basically, there are fundamentally three forms of power. There are three forms of sort of political power. There's rule of one, um, there's rule of the few, and then there's rule of the many. Um, and then what Machiavelli said actually is there's, there's a good and a bad version of, of both of those. Um, and so the good version in, in Machiavelli's formulation, the good form of my, the rule of the one, the good form is monarchy. The bad form is tyranny mm-hmm. if for rule of the few, the good form is aristocracy. The bad form is oligarchy. And then for, um, uh, rule of the many, the good form is democracy and the bad form is, is anarchy. And so, and this is sort of a, a general framework for political systems. And then historically, if you read like Machiavelli, historically, political systems basically go through this rotation. They actually rotate through the six, and then they go back to the beginning. So they start out with monarchies. The, the king goes bad. That becomes a tyranny. The king is overthrown by the aristocracy. The aristocracy basically goes to seed, becomes the oligarchy. The people ultimately decide to hate the oligarchy. They take over. They assert democracy. Democracy doesn't work because the people can't rule because um, they're dispersed. That then turns into anarchy, and then therefore that's where you get a king. And so there's this sort of theory of sort of this timeless cycle uh, of politics that plays out. If you kind of read this book and take it seriously, then you kind of say, okay, what, what is our political system? Like, what, what political system do we live under? And so you can kind of run a process of elimination. You can kind of say, well, it's clearly not rule of the one anymore because, like, there's no more kings, right? So it, it's not monarchy or tyranny. Hopefully it's not anarchy. So that sort of, you know, brings it down to sort of aristocracy, oligarchy, or democracy. Um, and then what you what you want to say, right, is that it's it's oligarch, it, it's democracy, right? What we've all been trained from from childhood to say is that it's democracy. But of course, you know, a it's technically not democracy because it's representative democracy, which is not the same thing as democracy, right? So we're we're not, we're not like voting on every single issue. We're we're electing you know 435 Congress people and 100 senators and so forth and a single president to figure this stuff out for us. So it's representative democracy. So it's basically rule of the few. And then if it's rule of the few, is it aristocracy or oligarchy? And I, I think the short answer to that is it was aristocracy basically up through about the 1960s. Um, and, you know, that was sort of the heyday of the wasp aristocracy. And then these sort of super elite assimilated, you know, uh, Catholic aristocrats, Jewish aristocrats, you know, kind of with the, with the sort of dominant Protestant aristocratic class at the time. Um, and then basically since the 1960s, you know, basically the aristocracy basically for a variety of reasons, either, you know, had power taken from it or just decided to give up power. And then and then our modern political form is is oligarchy. And then there's this big difference between aristocracy and oligarchy. Um, aristocracy consists of what Machiavelli called lions, which are people who basically rule through basically force and um, basically assertion of command. Master morale. Yeah, master morality. Yeah, well, so to the classical aristocratic rule is why am I in charge? Because I'm in charge. Like, I'm the aristocrat. I'm from the right family. I own the land. Screw you. Like, do what I tell you. The oligarch who competes with the aristocrat basically says, oh, actually, I'm ruling on behalf of the people. So he's what Machiavelli calls the foxes. Um, And basically, the foxes rule through deceit, manipulation, and cunning. And their form of deceit, manipulation, and cunning is to claim that they are acting on behalf of the people when, of course, they're actually acting primarily for themselves. Yeah. And so, anyway, Bert Burnham and Machiavelli and Cicero and all these guys, Aristotle would say, we're, we're, living, in, we're living in a classic oligarchy. Like, that, that's the actual structure that we're in. 
And then, and then basically, so anyway, long-winded way of getting to your question, which is, okay, what happens to a high-tech founder, right? Regardless of background, maybe they come from another country, maybe they come from here, maybe they come, you know, I, I come from the rural Midwest, um, and they start a tech company, and it works, and they become successful, and they become rich, right? And they become, like, high status all of a sudden. What happens? And the, and the, and the, and the question of what happens is they get invited into the oligarchy. Right. And, and literally what happens is you start getting invitations. Right. And so you get invited to Davos and you get invited to Aspen and you get invited to, you know, it's, it's, you know, Nantucket and you get invited to, you know, and, and by the way, you show up right to these things. You know, you show up to the, the Aspen Institute for the first time or whatever. And you're just like, oh, my God, like I've arrived. There's Prince Harry. Yeah, there's Prince Harry and there's, you know, Mike Bloomberg and there's, you know, all these like there's all these and there, you know, the movie stars and like, you know, TV stars and politicians and. You know, there's Cory Booker and there's Kamala Harris. And like, it's just like, it's like, wow, like I am in. Um, and, you know, dinners are great and the parties are great and it's all just so fantastic. And then at some point they're like, well, we have this project that we're raising funding for. And you're like, oh, wow, I would love to support your, you know, program to whatever reform, you know, whatever school, you know. And then all of a sudden you find yourself writing the checks and then it's like, well, you know, actually I'm running for president next year. And boy, I'd love to. And you're like, wow, you're my friend. I'd love to support you. Like, this is all great. And, and so it's, it's a, so what is it? It's like, a, it's a social circle. Right. Um, it's a political network. Uh, it's a patronage network. Um, it's a fundraising network. Um, it's a PR campaign. You know, it's, it's all of those things. It's a power, you know, it's a whole, it's a power, it's a governance structure. And, you know, if you're not like paying attention to it, what you're not getting in that group is you're not getting like some broad representation of different like political views and different walks of life. What you're getting is basically this like basically abstracted elite oligarch oligarchic class. Where they actually, it actually turns out like their politics are all just identical. Like they all believe exactly the same set of things. If they have arguments about anything, it's only on the margin. Um, and, you know, primarily it's a, it's an influence operation. It's a, you know, there's a lot of what's called log rolling. I support you, you support me. And it's a, it, and by the way, it's distributed. Like there's no central node. There's nobody in charge. There's no wizard behind the curtain. There's no secret boss who's organizing the whole thing. Like it's happening. You know, these are literally like conferences of 400 people where somehow they all end up thinking the same thing like that. You know, that, yeah. that is. And so anyway, what 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 Burnham would Burnham describes this process in the book and he calls the, it's the, the, the technical term for it is called the circulation of elites because of the political structure stuff I was talking about. Any 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 modern any modern society is going to be an oligarchy. Basically, um, that oligarchy is going to have a, a, a ruling elite at the top. The only way that that oligarchic elite can ever be displaced is with another elite taking its place, right? Um, which reasons for reasons we could talk about. Like populism is a total dead end. It, it would have yeah. to be replacement by a different category of elite. Um, and then basically, it's like okay, if you were a self-optimizing oligarchic elite collective, like how would you make sure that no new elite gets formed? The way that you would do that is you would recruit all of the new high capacity, high merit, high achieving people who rise up in the system. You would make sure to recruit them into your elite, right? You just exactly the process. You would you would invite them in, and then you and then they be, they become one of you. And so anyway, that's the that's literally what happens. That's what happened. And by the way, and by the way, like I've been in all you know I've been in all these places. I've been in all these conferences. Like I've, I've you know I know all these people. You know, and, and it's great. It's just like an incredibly exciting, you know, it's an incredible adventure. It's like the culmination of your life's work that you're like in this, in this, yeah. in this network. It's just like, okay, it's all great. As long as that's the political system that you think should rule the country for the next hundred years, as long as these are the people who should be in charge, as long as you agree with all their policies, it's all absolutely fantastic. Even, and, the, and this is the irony of it is the people who, be, you know, most people who become billionaires in our society or become very successful, like, you know, in business, they're like super contrarian, right? So they've got like a thousand different, you know, every, every entrepreneur we know has been highly successful. Like they're these super disagreeable people who've got all these really contrary ideas on how to run companies and how to do things, which is why they're successful entrepreneurs. 
but they get they get pulled into this world and all of a sudden they become like incredibly conformist, right? And they they just they they no longer have any unique opinions on anything involving politics or social policy or the structure of society or anything. They just they just adopt this sort of this sort of oligarchic elite view kind of wholesale with exceptions. And then and then basically to your question, what happens is every once in a while you get an exception, you get somebody who's basically like, look, I could go do that, I could be part of that, but like I'm not gonna do it. The guy I think who actually unlocked this in our era is actually not actually originally Elon, uh, surprisingly. I actually think it was Larry Page. Hmm. Um, and um, I don't know if you recall, this is like a decade ago now. Uh, Larry, you know, there was all this pressure at the time. There was the billionaire pledge, right? So Buffett and Gates, who are kind of charter members of this, this oligarchic elite that we're talking about, they created this billionaire pledge, which again is another form of this elite assimilation thing, right? To try to get everybody to kind of sign up for the whole program. And uh, they're always trying to get Larry Page to sign it. Larry's like, look, he's like, I don't think that I should, I don't think the right thing to do with all the money that I have from Google is to just give it away because who knows these nonprofits, who knows what they do. He's like, I think what I should do is if I get hit by a truck, I think my money should just go to Elon Musk and he should just build new company, you know, build more companies. Right. I mean, if you remember at the time, the reporters are all just like yeah. completely horrified because like, oh my God, that's not, you're not on the program. Like, how can you not be on the program? Like everybody knows what to do. Why don't you know what to do? Right. And Larry's right. like, well, I just think that Elon building companies is having a bigger impact on the world you know, than the Ford Foundation, like, you know, as, as contrarian an idea as, as, as that was at the time. <laughs> yeah. And so it, Larry actually like kind of hung that out there. And then, and then your, to your point, like Elon's been living it, Peter lives it. Um, and, and, and the fact that there's like, you know, Elon and Peter and Larry and others who are a little bit more kind of off the beaten path now on some of these things, I think is opening up the aperture for the next generation. Um, a few observations. First, it, it, what's interesting is that the, uh, it's not like there's a new elite and an old elite and it's a generational divide as much because like SBF is 30 years old and yet he's a Davos elite, you know, as a Davos as, as they come. Perhaps. Hold on, hold yeah. on. Sam, <laughs> Sam went from, you know, Stanford math kid to like, or MIT math kid to like full charter member of the oligarchic elite that rules the world in like three years. I mean, it was yeah. incredible. incredible. By the way, yeah. apparent, and by the way, apparently he's still in it because they all keep defending him. So like, apparently, like, apparently it worked. Yeah. Yeah, effective altruism. You know, your your um your partner, you know, your wife is in uh, in philanthropy, and and you guys talked about res results driven philanthropy. Of who wouldn't be you know supportive of results driven philanthropy? What's the sort of blind spot of uh you know effective altruism? So my wife has taught for many years uh, actually at Stanford. Um, uh, actually, she's taught philanthropy as she sort of helped develop one of the main people who developed philanthropy as a as an academic field. And actually taught philanthropy at Stanford Business School, which he used to describe as sort of trying to divert the sharks uh, <laughs> out of the for-profit tank into the... And, and her whole thrust was what she called strategic philanthropy, which, which basically you could, you could think about it, I would think about it loosely as like a grounded version of effective altruism, which is... And, and, and so her critique, all, and she's, she's given talks and she wrote a book. She wrote a book called Giving 2.0 where she talks about this if you want to read it. But what she says is, look, there's a critique of philanthropy that she believes that, by the way, Sam would also agree with, which is basically most philanthropy is emotional. Right. Like I, you know, I or somebody I love goes through a health scare. I then donate money for that particular condition. Um, right. Or I go on a trip, you know, I go and I don't know, I go to Hawaii or something and I discover the plight of the dolphins and I start to donate money to that, you know, because it tugs in my heartstrings. Right. Or I see a TV commercial and there's some poor thing, you know, some poor person and da, 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 I, I donate money. Um, you know, so this is like in, in medical research, for example, it's, it's like there, there are certain conditions that just get like dramatically overfunded. And there are certain other conditions that are even more serious. They get dramatically underfunded just because of like who happens to get what conditions. Uh, the classic example is actually the age effect of medical research. Right. So the stuff that old people suffer from gets like much more funny than the stuff that young people suffer from. And of course, the reason is because young people who suffer from something don't have any money to donate yet. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Whereas when you're old and you get sick, you maybe have some money and then that's you, you make your, your decision based on that. So anyway, 
So my wife basically says, look, you should take, you, you should basically think of philanthropy, at, you should evaluate philanthropic basically gifts in the same way you evaluate business investments. Like you, sh you should think hard in terms of, you know, yes. the actual effect that things are going to have and you should try to quantify it and so forth. And so, and you know, look, we, we, we've done that in our private philanthropy. So as an example, you know, we've, our, one of our big pushes as, you know, for years now has been uh, Stanford Hospital and in particular the ER department of Stanford Hospital. And a big reason for that is just, you know, any given day, I want to basically understand what impact our philanthropy is having. I can go sit in the waiting room at Stanford ER and I can see the patients come in and I can see them get treated. Like it's a very tactical, tangible, practical, you know, kind of deterministic thing. So, so, so there's that. Um, you know, effective altruism basically, you could say, takes that idea and then like scales it way up and basically says, okay, you should apply that same attitude and that same methodology to basically all of humanity, right? And 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 you should basically right fu fully implement the philosophy of utilitarianism, which, which is to say the greater good. And you should basically be able to math mathematically model, and you should say, okay, if I do X Y Z today, then it's going to have this impact, not just you know next year, five years from now, but ten years from now, fifty years from now, hundred years ago, hundred years from now. By the way, maybe the entire future of civilization, right? Maybe I'm going to make an investment today that's going to result in humanity reaching the stars, or humanity curing all diseases, or humanity achieving whatever desired result hundred years from now. You know, the critique of that has always been the, the same as the critique of utilitarianism, which is like you get into a level of abstraction where you basically start to play God, right? Uh, and you start to think that you can put things in a spreadsheet that extrapolate out, you know, 100 years in the future with huge numbers of variables. You start to think that you can re-engineer society, right? You start to think that you can kind of play this like really big game, right? Will, will you ever actually be able to prove any of your assertions? Will you ever actually see the results of your work? Will you ever actually, will there ever be a feedback loop back to what you're doing so that you can correct? Like, probably not. And so anyway, this is my, my critique of it. It's like, it's just, it, it, it leads you into this like playing God social engineering thing. And of course, if you ask, well, what kinds of political movements support playing God and doing social engineering? I think we'd agree on the answers. Yeah, and then there's an interpretation, right? There's an interpretation. I don't know if it's true, right? But there's an, there was a famous, uh, one of the famous Sam Bankman-Fried interviews was an interview with Tyler Cowen uh, where uh, Tyler asked him, um, you know, because they're talking about all this stuff, that the math involved in effective altruism and utilitarianism and, and probabilities and so forth. and. And uh, Tyler's like, you know, suppose you had a, you could, you know, with a roll of the dice, with 51% odds, you would get another Earth. Like, you would literally get another Earth with, like, another 8 billion people and, like, another, like, an entire, like, ecosystem. And you'd, like, basically, you'd double the footprint of humanity in the cosmos. Um, but with 49% probability, you would lose the one Earth that you have. Right? And, 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 you know, do you roll the dice? And Sam's like, oh, of course. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? And, and, and you get the expected value, like expected, quote unquote, expected value, you're more, you know, da da da. And then, of course, Tyler's next question is, you know, do you roll the dice more than once, right? Like, suppose you win the first time, you, you, you know, it comes up, it comes up heads, um, and you get your two Earths, and you, you, you then get to make the same bet again, you know, double or nothing, right? And then Sam's argument was, so you, you, you keep actually making that argument over and over again, because, like, if you get it right 10 times in a row, then you've got a thousand Earths, and, like, that would be, like, so much better than what we have today. Like, how could you not take that chance? Anyway. One of the theories about what happened at FTX was he, he applied that philosophy to running a financial services firm. <laughs> he kept rolling the dice. <laughs> kept rolling the dice. And the dice came up, you know, positive, yeah, you know, a bunch years. of times in a row. And, you know, it got him into this incredible position. And so he just kept rolling the dice. And, you know, and so, so there's a theory that basically, like, what he was fundamentally doing was trying to optimize the future of all humanity by trying to roll the dice so that he would end up with a trillion dollars so that he would end up being able to solve all the, all the problems. Now... There's an issue with that theory, which is he gave that interview to the reporter for Vox, where he basically said, "Yeah, I was lying about all, <laughs> lying about all that stuff." It's, so, a, it's a dumb game. Wait, woke Westerners play to make people like us. <laughs> exactly. So, 
he undermined his own defense there a little bit, but you know, who knows? Yeah. Uh, another, another couple observations. One is, you know, Elon is, is acting as a, as a lion to, to use the language you mentioned, but he's um, a meritocratic lion, not a, you know, I, I rule because I'm the best, not because of my family. And what's interesting, you know, Bobo's in Paradise, Dave Brooks' book, uh, you know, chronicles how we moved from an aristocratic elite to a meritocratic elite, but that same meritocratic elite also became most critical of meritocracy itself. And, and maybe as a way to deflect or, you know, or, or maybe just kind of reconcile this, this idea that, hey, um, there are inherited advantages to if you have better, we don't actually have a quality of opportunity and if you have better. And so the other observation I'll mention is um, we mentioned how these billionaires who've been so successful, so contrarian in their uh, private company lives, you know, when it comes to the Davos elite, they have a lot of weird views, uh, a lot of weird views about how people should live in their you know, personal lives, but then also global government kind of ethos. Um, and, and I'm curious how you kind of reconcile, you know, you're, you're a fan of immigration, you're a fan of trade, you're a fan of globally connect, connected wor- you know, world, but you don't want glo- global governance. What, what is sort of the right framing of think, thinking about that? So a couple, a bunch of big questions in there. So let's start with, remind me the first, the first thing? Meritocratic elite yeah, yeah. denies meritocracy. Let's talk about that for a moment. So, so there's this guy. So there's a guy I kind of you can kind of trace this progression. So there's this guy James Conant, C O N A N T, and so he was a. By the way, he was an American. He was an American, you know, wasp elite, you know, out of central casting. He's a very important figure in 20th century American history. So he he became very. He was a chemist actually by background and actually worked on like chemical weapons in like World War One as like one of these like really advanced kind of science guys. Um, and then he 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 was famously in the early 20th century. He was the for, for a long time he was the president of Harvard. Right, which you know, then and now, Harvard was like the you know kind of the peak, you know, the highest status you know educational institution in the country. I, I bring him up because he did exactly what you're describing. Right, he came out of a system of actually inherited aristocracy, which was kind of the traditional American WASP aristocracy. He basically he was very explicit about this. He he used Harvard as a vehicle to basically replace the inherited aristocracy um, with basically an aristocracy of merit or an oligarchy of merit, which which we'll come to, but a, but a sort of a, a, a class of merit. And he and he's the guy who basically opened up uh, admissions at Harvard, and he basically says, we're not just going to have, it's not going to be all legacies and all people with the right last name and all people with families in the social register and their families you know, came over in the Mayflower and all that stuff. You know, it's going to be the best and the brightest. Um, and we're going to basically scour the country, and we're going to basically go find the best and the brightest, and we're going to recruit them in. And then we're going we're gonna to basically have this... this Aristocratic elite class of, of of merit, and and he actually did that. As a consequence of that, um, the, all every other university basically did that. That led to the creation of, for example, the SAT, the ACT, like merit testing, right? Um, you know, sort of emerged out of that. Um, and and so the 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 goal literally was like go scour the country every year, get the smartest kids from wherever they happen to be, and like bring and basically and by, and by the way, like again, circulation of elites, invite them in. Right, invite them in. Congratulations! Like it doesn't matter where you came from. Now you're at Harvard. Now you're a Harvard graduate. Now you're in the Harvard network. Like we're gonna, we're going to jump you up to this ability where you can have this giant impact on the world. But you're here because of merit. Funny thing happened. Um, <laughs> uh, it did not uh, result in equal representation by group. Um, and so they ran this process for you know twenty or thirty years. And let's just say there were some disparities. Um, and there were some population groups that were like extremely unhappy. And there were some other population groups that wanted to speak for the previous population groups and assert their moral superiority and say that, that these are, these are bad outcomes. And so he, he came under, you know, sort of increasingly intense criticism later in his career. And by the 1960s, he was basically canceled, you know, cause he, he made comments uh, at the time on race that, you know, basically, you know, even the 1960s would get you canceled. His career basically spanned all three phases. It, it spanned the original, basically inherited the inherited concept of aristocracy, 
when he started, um, and he was a product of that himself. Um, he then implemented and essentially co-created the idea of an aristocracy of merit and, impl- and fully implemented it. And then he ended his career basically on the other side, which was the birth of the modern system, civil rights, affirmative action, um, and, you know, modern university admissions, you know, it's all, you know, coming full circle because Harvard, you know, the, the Harvard case is now in front of the Supreme Court. You know, they, it seems like Supreme Court is highly likely to use the Harvard case to strike down affirmative action in university admissions, which if they, the Supreme Court's intent, if they do that would be to return Harvard back to where it was when James Conant was running it, you know, in like the 1930s, 1940s. <laughs> Probably that's not what would actually happen. But yeah. <laughs> um, so it's a little bit of the thing that you and I were talking about earlier, which is like, okay, if there was this moment, let's say there was this moment when James Conant was running Harvard, and let's say it's 19, probably 1940 is like a good midpoint for this or something, where like they truly were uh, admitting purely on the basis of merit. And, and again, you could, you could create many different criti- criticisms as to whether they were, you know, different advantages and all that stuff you could talk about. But let's just say they were doing it straight on the basis of, S- of SAT scores. Um, and so it doesn't matter where you grew up. It doesn't matter what, you know, whatever ethnic background, immigration status, none of that gender, none of that matters. It's just how do you score on the SAT? They actually did that for a while, right? And then that became, for whatever set of reasons, good or bad, that became untenable starting in the 1960s. And they have been basically evolving in a very different direction ever since. So apparently, at least in our culture, in our era, like that's not actually a stable, yeah. that's not a stable state. Like it is, is it, for people who would like that to be how these things work, like, sorry, <laughs> like, this is this. Harvard's not going to do it, yeah. <laughs> right? So if anybody's going to do that, it's going to be some sort of new institution. Like it's going to be have to, it's, it's going to have to be somebody else. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. I mean, people like uh, Michael Schellenberger, people like Thomas Sowell, uh, there are a number of people who've shown that there's a certain set of policies that people, the, the foxes are, promote that actually don't help the people that they're aiming to help. Um, and they recommend alternative policies, but those alternative policies kind of break a fundamental assumption that uh, you know, all people are equal, or, 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 or some fundamental assumption that people are uncomfortable with, and so they would rather have, they would rather keep the fundamental assumption that kind of they, they think respects people's dignity or something, than than get maybe the outcomes that they want. And it feels like that that fundamental assumption is so core to so many things. Well, this goes to, but then this goes to also your, your, your I think sort of the same question yes. earlier, which is sometimes the, this oligarchic elite seems to end up with these somewhat crazy ideas, like. Well, look, so again, what Burnham would say here, what Burnham would say is very straightforward, which is this oligarchic elite has become a very disconnected class, right? So it's, it's become a very disconnect, disconnected set of people. They are actually often very high merit. They, they often actually are like quite smart. Um, it's not that they're dumb. Um, they have been educated at a relatively small number of institutions. Generally, you see a very high correlation to a certain small number of like Ivy, Ivy League universities and their international equivalents. They associate primarily with each other. Like part of what you get when you join the oligarchic elite is you get like a set of friends and your new set of friends are like much cooler than your old set of friends. They kind of, by definition, don't invite people in who don't fit. Right. And so if you show up and you're like, wow, I really like that Tucker Carlson character. Right. Isn't he great? You know, you don't get invited to Aspen next year. Right. So they, they kind of box out. Um, you know, this is even before they classified all oppositional speech as hate speech and misinformation. Like even before that, it was like, look, you're going to have a certain set of points of view here if you want to fit in. Like it's a social dynamic. It's a social dynamic. It's a social club. Like any social club, people are expected to kind of all agree on things. And so it's like, I don't know, it's like the opposite. It's like, uh, what's the joke? It's a marketplace of idea. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right, right. There's no yeah. real dispute that happens, right? There's no truth seeking exercise. It's like, we're all going to basically agree on the same thing. Um, and so, and then they just, they live in rarefied air and then you're, you know, a lot of them, you know, they're, they're either rich or they have a lot of rich friends. Um, and so, you know, they tend to live behind high walls. 
you know, they tend to be guarded by men with guns. Um, you know, they tend to not be subject to violent street crime. Um, by the way, you know, another irony in Seoul, and others have pointed this out, the other irony is they actually follow very bourgeois traditional life scripts on average. Like yeah. most, you know, the, 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 most of them, you know, if they have kids, it, it's generally, you know, if, if they have kids, it's generally they're married. They're, you know, they're raising their kids in, 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 in uh, two-parent households. Um, you know, they have very kind of stable family situations. They, they prize education. They teach their kids to work hard. By the way, mating, like they have very strong opinions on who their kids should like marry and, and uh, reproduce with. One of the reasons why there's so much focus on getting kids into these top colleges is because that's the, you know, that's the marriage pool. You know, that's where the good people to marry are. So there's like a, there's like a, uh, you know, a, a, a reproductive kind of component to it. And so, you know, when something happens in the real world, that is not as they predict it, like they, you know, again, to have, they don't have skin in the game, like they're not subject to the consequences. So let's just take a hypothetical example. If they decide that the correct social policy to achieve true equality is to let all the criminals out of jail, hypothetically, um, <laughs> and the result is like a massive surge in street crime that is victimizing like huge numbers of you know, poor and disadvantaged people, um, they're completely insulated from that, right? They have no risk. I, actually, no, I mean, I'll, I'll, I, won't pay, I won't name names as tempting as it is, but like I know people who are like, you know, big funders of all of the pro-crime district, district attorneys, and they really believe that they're going to like heal the nation and heal the world and achieve racial harmony if they let all the criminals out of jail. And they are, in my view, responsible for like just this massive violent crime wave that's happening right now. And they are, then they literally have like SEAL teams protecting them. Yeah. Right. So there's no like, you know, crackhead homeless person who's going to come get past your SEAL team six security guy. Right. Like you're ruling a society, yeah. but with no accountability whatsoever um, for, uh, you know, for the results. And so, yeah, so it, it's extremely easy. In fact, it, it would be shocking if people in those circumstances did not get like radically disengaged uh, and disconnected from reality. And, and again, if you go back to your Machiavelli, that's where it's like the oligarchy at some point that the, yeah. at some point the people are just like, you know what, screw this, screw these people, you know, um, and they at some point they show up with pitchforks and just kind of take care of the problem. Yeah. To, to finish the, the, the analogy around, you know, or sort of the tension between nationalism and, and globalism, in some ways, this is supposed to be the era of the sovereign individual. And yet it seems like, as we see, saw during COVID, governments are, are adopting some of those technological advancements to control its people in, in tightening and, you know, increasingly tightening ways. And it, it seems like this idea of global governance, global coordination to solve whether it's climate problems and nuclear proliferation or, you know, what's going to happen with AI, God for, you know, uh, it feels like that's, that's becoming more and more vogue. And yet, you know, for people who are, as you are, excited about trade, excited about immigration, excited about global coordination, how do you kind of reconcile those tensions or say, hey, you know, stop here? Yeah, so there's this idea that you've alluded to that's like very deeply seated and call it, you know, you could call it modern global governance, as they sometimes call it. It's, you know, it's like if you go to the World Economic Forum, like they'll teach you this or there's sort of this through line, which basically says, and it, it actually... And it actually, it, it, in a lot of ways, I mean, in some ways it's like baked tightly, it's baked into Judeo-Christianity generally, but like Hegel was the philosopher who kind of, um, you know, kind of fully articulated this in sort of modern philosophic terms. And then his thinking was carried forward by Marx and, 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 and others, which basically is like, look, the, the sort of flow of history is basically um, confronting problems and solving problems. And so everything, you, you know, life used to be nasty, brutish, and short, and everybody used to die of disease, and everybody was hungry, and da-da-da-da-da, so everybody was slaves, like all these problems. And then basically, but there's what they call the sort of historical process, right? And, and the historical process plays out. And the way the historical process plays out is what Hegel called the dialectic. And the dialectic basically is, you know, you've got basically one theory for how things should work. Boy, they don't seem like they're working very well. You've got another theory on things you should do about it. You argue about that. And then you come up, you know, sort of thesis, antithesis, and then you come up with synthesis, and you kind of get to the answer. 
right? And then, and then basically you play out that answer. By the way, if it works, that's great. If it doesn't work, you repeat the process until you figure out the answer. But at some point, you figure out the answer. At some point, the right set of smart people, whether they're philosopher kings or, you know, democratic rulers or, you know, scientific experts, right? At some point, they're going to run the experiments on how to optimize society such that they will ultimately, at some point, figure out the right answers. Now, imagine that you ran that process for hundreds of years, right? And you ultimately figured out the right set of answers. And maybe at one point, you know, you thought that that was, you know, Stalinism. Maybe at one point you thought that, whatever, whatever. But like, you've arrived at a point where like, it's like, okay, you know, this is the, the, the end of history thing, the Fukuyama, like liberal democracy. Like we figured it out. We figured it out. We've solved the answers. We have the playbook. We have it. You know, the, the Davos version of this is whatever global democracy thing that they have. If you really have all the answers, right, then you have the ultimate moral imperative to impose those answers on the entire world, because of course you do, because you have all the answers, right? Like you can solve all the problems, right? It's the only morally correct thing to do, because if you don't do it, all these poor people are going to be suffering in all these completely unnecessary ways. And so therefore, I have the answers, therefore, I must impose them. This is the intellectual foundation underneath communism. Like this was the story at the time. Um, this is the story behind the current Chinese form of communism. Like th this, this is like a thing. This is like this, 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 this yeah. idea has had a big impact on history. Um, and the strong forms of it are not doing as well right now, but the sort of, this sort of softer form of it, it's less of a, of a, of a, of a hammer and a little bit more of a, I don't know, velvet fist or something, but th this impulse is very strong. And, and this is the impulse of, you know, all these, this is the impulse of the oligarchic elite. Like we have the answers, yeah. we have figured out the answers. And by the way, we just saw it playing out in COVID, right? We, like, the, the answers are like super obvious. We're going to have lockdowns. We're going to have this. We're going to have that. And like, we are not open. Like we have already figured out there, there's no more reason to discuss this. Like we have the answers. Anybody opposing us is clearly opposing us in bad faith because we are, the, you know, to challenge me is to challenge, challenge science, nice. right? Yeah, yeah. Like I have the answers. Like stop bothering me and just do what I say, right? Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, look, people who oppose that, right, it's, you know, you, you know what they're called, right? You know, they're called nationalists, right? Because they don't want the quote unquote global governance that, you know, they're called, you know, fascists because they don't want, you know, yeah. right? You know, so you got all the kind of the kind of dirty words. Um, uh, Yoram Hazoni uh, uh, wrote a book a couple of years ago called The, Virtue, the Virtues of Nationalism, which is a very provocative title in the, in the current environment. And he was actually blocked from advertising the book on certain social media platforms because it sounded like it must be a fascist <laughs> manifesto. Um, now, he's Israeli. Um, you know, it's a bit much to accuse him of being a Nazi. And so he makes this argument in the, in the book that, you, that you'll enjoy. Um, and it's, it's the kind of argument that never really works, but it is a fun argument to hear, which is he's like, actually, this global, this sort of Hegelian global governance world state kind of thing um, is anti-diversity. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> right. Because he's like, look, the advantage of having many, the, the way Sony puts it is the advantage of having many countries right, is you have many different systems of organizing society, and then you are actually able, you know, and you, and you therefore have diversity of the forms of society. And so therefore, you can actually, you can actually have real life experiments play out as to which things are better, which ones aren't. If everything is just globalist, and everything is just a single global, you know, ultimately a single global state, which is like the Hegelian and, and you know, kind of Marxist dream, you know, you will eliminate all forms of, of, of diversity of social organization and philosophic ideas, Right. And, 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 and so basically you, you will not, you will not achieve utopia. You will achieve dystopia, right? Cause you will no longer have a process of evolutionary involvement of, of, uh, of thinking. And so he says in the book, if you are pro diversity, you should therefore be pro nationalism. You should be <laughs> pro the existence of many separate states. Of course, this yeah. argument does not work at all. Right. Um, which is, you know, just because the same people who want universal world government also say they want diversity does not mean that they're going to buy yeah. his argument that you should therefore be nationalist. Just like they won't buy the argument that if you're pro diversity, you should have, you know, political diversity as well.
Uh, yes, we we can definitely not hate anybody from a different kind of ethnic background, but we can definitely hate the people on the other side of the political aisle with the theory of a thousand signs and tell our kids that they are definitely not allowed to marry any of those people. Yeah, because yeah, that's because that, that that form of hate is 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 just fine now. But anyway, I, I go through all that because like that to your question, like that that is a massive kind of underlying question underneath a lot of this, which is like, do we want the entire world to run the same way? Um, and if we really have all the answers, yes, we do. Um, if we believe that it is actually impossible for anybody to have all the answers and that it actually is a very you know terrible assumption to ever believe that and that reality is actually like super messy right then you know then then this track that a lot of people are on is actually a very dystopia and you know kind of potentially you know at least a potentially hellish outcomes yeah you know what am i you know i don't know like <laughs> somewhere somewhere in the middle like you yeah. know i'm sort of prime you know i'm a prime benefit yeah i'm a prime beneficiary of globalization you know, you and I work in a field in which there's no question, like our field is like spectacularly right. enriched, um, you know, by the just enormous amounts of immigration that have happened in the U.S. over the last 50 years. We work with people who are, you know, I feel like I work with the United Nations every day. Like I work with people from all these different backgrounds. Um, it's just absolutely spectacular. I would not want to live in a system that would somehow decide that was a bad idea and send them all back to wherever that, you know, that, that would be horrible. Like that would be awful. You know, look, at the same time, do I think it's a good idea to have a single system of global governance where there's a set of experts that like determine everything and like everything is equal and everything is the same? Like, no, that sounds like hell. What what if they're experts and fact checkers? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the missing link is the fact checkers because they can make sure the experts are on the straight and narrow. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Checks and balances. Let's uh, let's get into this this counter elite. We alluded to it earlier that, you know, populism is a bit of a dead end. We alluded to, you know. Peter Thiel in uh, 2016, when he endorsed Trump, was a bit of a pariah, uh, and, and now he's. Uh, there's been more um, diversity uh, within tech, and it seems like this counter elite is forming. You know, Elon obviously is, is potentially accelerating it massive, massively. That's on a macro level, on the billionaire level, but then also like on a micro level, a lot of tech people are kind of politically homeless. Uh, they, they don't want to be on, on either side. They don't want to be in the far left. You know, policies that sound good but don't work, or dysfunction within organizations, but they don't want to be on the far right. They don't watch Fox News. They're pro-choice. They, so they, they don't want to be Republicans. They don't want to be conservative. Uh, they, they want to be, you know, a centrist, but that, that won't hold for maybe reasons we, we, we've discussed. So, uh, you know, on kind of that level, but on, on the billionaire, like play, play this out, the counter elite sort of new, new moral, new philosophy among, among people who, who've been homeless. Politically. Yeah. So let's, I'm going to focus, you know, more on the structural kind of aspect. So I'm sure. trying to be a little bit less on the partisan side, but on, on the structural side. So, so what, what Burnham was, I, I did the throwaway comment saying populism is a dead end. And so it's, it's, it's worth for a moment kind of addressing why, why that's the case. Like, even if you think the current elite is terrible, like let's even assume you're a full on yeah. whatever, you know, let's assume you fully believe the current elite is evil and they must be torn down and must be replaced by a true democracy. Like what, what Burnham would explain to you is like, that's, that's not actually possible. And, and it's, it's the exact same point that we discussed earlier on managerialism. Um, or, or the, the, another version of it is what Burnham calls the iron law of oligarchy, which, which basically is in every human system, no matter, and by the way, this also was true in communism, true in the Soviet Union communism, it's true in China today under communism. Every human system always, there's always a minority of people ruling the majority of people. Um, like that, that, that's basically permanent. Like there's never actually democracy. It's, it's, it's always basically some minority ruling some majority. And you see this play out over thousands of years across many different kinds of societies. And the reason for that is it's, it's mechanical, right? And it's, it's just, there's no, the argument has no bearing on how they rule. It's just that they will, there will be an elite that rules. And it's a mechanical argument. And it's because the elite is concentrated, whereas the majority is dispersed, uh-huh. right? And so if you have 100 people who are highly concentrated and are organized uh, up against 10,000 people who are a rabble, right? And a mob, um, right? And just, or just like a populace that's just like out there doing their own thing every day. 
and they're just not organized. Like the organized elite is always going to end up in power over the, dis the, the disorganized masses. And this, this just happens over and over and over again. Again, the American system. Why do we not have a pure democracy? We do, we do not have a pure democracy because our founding fathers were well aware that, I mean, just imagine the horror show that would result if citizens got to vote on every individual issue as it came up, which, by the way, that's what happens in California. <laughs> which is like, California is so screwed up now. But, you know, representative, representative democracy is an expression of the fact that even in a system that was intended to be very egalitarian and very democratic, you're still going to have this organized elite in the form of the literally Congress and the executive branch and the nine justices of the Supreme Court who are fundamentally going to run the country on behalf of the people. So anyway, this is what's called the iron law of oligarchy. There will always be a small number of people in charge of the large number of people. That small number of people is referred to in, in this framework as the elite, um, the, the oligarchic elite. And, and again, we talked about it before. Like, how do they rule? They, they, they rule by telling a story that legitimizes their rule. That story, is the story, that story in our era is the story of egalitarianism. They are not ruling for themselves. They are ruling on behalf of the people. They, they tell that story. They have policies that are intended to deliver on that, maybe a little bit in some ways, you know, sometimes, maybe not in other ways. But like, that's the story that they tell. And so and then as a consequence of that, like they, they are the elite. They, they set the narrative. They, they, they have the dominant part. They have the sort of the, the, the high, the sort of moral high ground in society. And then they have these reinforcement mechanisms. They have, a, you know, the credentialing system and they have their recruitment system to bring in, assimilate in the, the, you know, the new people and so forth. By the way, they don't necessarily have all the money, but they have the power. Um, and then they have, um, they have the ability to perpetuate, um, and then they have, they, they have the, uh, sort of status high ground. So sort of status, prestige, fashion, like these are the fancy people. Like the, these are the people that when they do things and they say things like people care. If you read a Burnham, what, 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 what he will tell you is basically like, if the people were to actually rise up, like suppose the people woke up one day and literally took pitchforks and, you know, and, uh, torches and went and stormed, you know, Davos and Aspen and kill the oligarchic elite, the result would be anarchy. They're like, the result would be hell, right? It would just be a spiral into hell. It would be, you know, you know like, a, it'd be like Black Hawk Down territory of just like, you know, madness and chaos. And so like that, that, that's not a route. So what, what you need is you, if, if you want to replace the elite that you have today, what you need to do is you need to have a better elite. Mm -hmm. There's just the only one way out. If you don't like the current oligarchic elite, um, that doesn't result in just mass death. The only way out is a superior elite. Okay, what would be a superior elite to the elite that we have today? Well. A bunch of things. So one is they would presumably have a set of ideas that would be better ideas because that would presumably be the whole point of doing this. They would then need a story that is a superior story, right? So it's sometimes called a political myth, right? Um, which is they would need a, a moral claim, right? That was able to legitimate their rule. They would need um, fashion status prestige, right? If you belong to our elite, you are a higher status, higher prestige person than if you belong to that yes. elite. And then they would need to build the kind of all, all these other things, the perpetuation method, the recruitment method, fund, you know, they yeah. would need funding. They would need a, an education system. Like they would need media organs, you know, for people who want to change the system. Like that, 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 that is the way to do it. Now, it's been done before. Um, and uh, it could be done again. You know, having said that, like, it's like the world's biggest challenge because... Like, whatever you think of the current oligarchic elite, like, they are very powerful. They are very in charge. They have many resources. They are very cool people. Yeah. And, you know, to a smaller extent, Teal has done this with uh, the Teal Fellowship, you know, is higher status in, in some circles or many circles than, than even getting into Harvard or, or Stanford. Um, so that's one example of, of an organ. If, if people are pursuing this in earnest, like, on the, on the ideas and, and, and myth level, let's brainstorm if you're open to it, you know, one track could be competence. Hey, hey, this, you know, as, as we saw during COVID, et cetera, this, this past elite has, has been incompetent. Uh, and putting intentions aside, you know, we're just a much more competent elite. We're going to focus on unifying instead of dividing via this cultural, I don't know, I'm just kind of riffing here, but what, what ideas and myths do you think are potentially compelling that 
you know, a, a counter elite could could get behind, could advocate and and might resonate. Yeah. So I think let's, let's build on those two to start with. Yeah. So, yeah, one is just like, yeah, competence. Like, you know, look, we, like, would you like your eight year old to be able to walk to school without getting like mugged or assaulted? <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, you know, it's like at some point there are some very basic like competence questions. Yeah. You know, how did you feel about being locked up for three years? Right. And you got COVID anyway. Oh, that's interesting. Right. <laughs> like, right. So, yeah. So, like, I think there's that. And, you know, there's always this question of like, you know, when, when, when do people finally get fed up? I mean, you know, a, a, a city level version of this was crime in New York City in the 1970s. And then, you know, they, they at some point they did elect an, an anti-crime mayor. And then he, at some point, you know, he did bring crime down. So like, you know, this, this does play out at a micro level for sure. A couple of things on that, like it'd have to be real, right? Like if you were, if you didn't deliver, like, you know, people would get very upset. You, you, the same thing would happen to you. So, and then you'd have to be able to recruit, right? You're a chicken and egg problem. You'd have to be able to recruit in the people who were actually capable of executing on it, right? Uh, before they're actually in power. Uh, right. So, so the key question, always, you know, the key question always is like the way to think about this is like, suppose you have an existing corrupt elite, like let's suppose hypothetically, you have an existing corrupt, rotten, incompetent oligarchic elite, and yeah. you have a new, fresh, competent, fired up, you know, merit meritocratic elite. Um, and then put yourself in the shoes of like an aggressive, ambitious young person right out of school who's like on the make and like wants to like optimize their position in society and wants like status and power and money. Right. And it's and so you say so you have to have a recruitment, like your story has to be really good. And you have to have like a critical mass, the ability to recruit those people, because otherwise the existing at least just going to get constantly reinforced by having, you know, new, new, new people kind of take it over um, and carry it forward. So, um, yeah, so 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 that could be um, uh, that could be a really big one. What was your second one? Unifying people instead of divide. OK, so that's another thing. Yeah. So you might. Yeah. For example, you might observe hypothetically that our current elite seems to be doing an awful lot of demonization of the other side. Yeah. Um, you know, interestingly, the other side is, you know, basically it's, you know, arguably it's a sort of, you know, in our modern politics is class and race demarcated. Right. And so it's this, you know, there's nobody <laughs> like, it's really funny. Like our current oligarchic elite is like heavily dominated by like, you know, heavily dominated by white people. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, there's nothing more than they hate that they hate than, you know, than poorer white people than them. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, yeah, I mean, they they, they sell, you know, that you, you could argue they sell a story of division, um, and you know, the, the deplorables, right. And, and, and yeah, you could, you could have a, you know, you could, you could have more of a, a sort of a Julius Caesar kind of thing where you'd say, look, like, no, I'm not gonna kind of rule on behalf of 51% of the country versus 49%. I'm going to rule on behalf of the entire country, right. I'm going to invite everybody in, um, you know, I'm, and we're going to lift, we're going to lift, we're going to lift the whole thing. Now, you know, you are denying people the ability, you know, then to hate, right? Which is a huge attraction of the current system, right? Um, yes. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you're taking a big motivator away. You're replacing it with something that, you know, I think probably a lot of people would find more attractive. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is what you always kind of expect would happen in all these cities, right? Which is, it's like, okay, like if, the, if, 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 you know, if the, if, if the single party governance of all these cities is going so well, like, why is the crime rate so, so high? Like, yeah. you know, at some point it's like, okay, they're not delivering. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's that, you, you know, look, you'd have to challenge some sacred cows, right? You'd have to say, look, like, you know, maybe we should not, you know, maybe we should not be trying to do the level of social engineering that's happening, right? Maybe it's a bad idea to have, you know, maybe it's a bad idea to have differential, you know, uh, you know, standards for different groups of people. You know, historically, this is like the big, you know, this is like the biggest game of all. It's the, it's the creation of basically a new political story, right? Um, it's, a, you know, it's the creation of a rationale to rule, um, you know, that actually results in the support necessary to actually get in the position where you actually are ruling. Yeah. Um Recently, you've, you've been tweeting out a series of, of white pills, uh, you know, reasons to be excited. You know, this is me projecting a little bit, but it, it, I feel like the last few years um, for, for you and others have been a bit more, um, you know, pessimistic times. And so I'm, I'm curious for what's inspiring the recent optimism. And, and, and maybe we can end with sort of the, the pessimistic case and the optimistic case. You know, some people have described the pessimistic case as like, 
a, a very slow decay, you know, a hundred years Brazilification, I think some people call it. And uh, I'm, I'm curious for what, what, the, what the optimistic case is. Yeah, I think the optimistic case, I mean, it's, it's I kind of worded negatively, but it's like one, one of my white pills is, you know, the, the current elite is actually really bad at specifically at being an elite. Yeah. Like who really, like, honestly, like who, who really wants to look up to some of the, I mean, maybe some of these people, people look up to, but like some of them, it's just like a hard, it's a hard sell. Like, I mean, God, like it's difficult. And by the way, again, this is not even a partisan. I wouldn't say this is not even a partisan yeah. comment. Like, you know, you just look at a lot of the sort of national level people and it's just like, Ooh, like I'm supposed <laughs> to get excited about that person. That seems like a stretch. Um, and then, you know, look, the results are like not great. Like, you know, I, you, you know, you can, like I said, you know, economic growth covers up a lot of, a lot of, a lot of sins, you know, the U S economy, you know, generally works pretty well. Um, but you know, you get in these situations like we've been in, you know, repeatedly for the last 20 years where you get in these weird COVID policy. I mean, look, COVID policy, right? Like it's like, two, you know, two weeks to crush the curve, right? Okay, two weeks to rest the curve became two months, became two years, right? And and nobody at any point, at least that I saw, ever like articulated, well, wait a minute, why did we ever think two weeks was ever gonna do anything? Did we know that two weeks was like, did we did, did we do two weeks knowing it was gonna fail and it was gonna be two months? So did did, did like did you lie to us or were you incompetent? Right. Yeah. Um, and so just like every element of this, I mean the mask, the mask thing alone, we could do like a whole podcast just on masks, but the whole mask thing alone, it's like the, the exact same people who in February of 2020 were saying there was no reason at all for any, you know, any normal civilian to ever be wearing a mask, you know, who, you know, within two months had it be basically the new, you know, holy face, you know, covering for all right thinking people, like, and then they were on to like, oh, maybe we should all double mask and triple mask. And then here we sit <laughs> three years later and there are still, you know, schools that are forced masking their kids. Like yeah. it's like, okay, like whatever this is, like whatever these people think they're doing, like it's not and then, and then everybody gets COVID anyway, right? So um Afghanistan. They, they say that we they say that we should forgive them. Uh they, they, yeah. they yeah. Right. Like the, you know, okay, right, because you know, right, it's you know, slight like morality, because good intent, right, covers covers, you know, sort of explains everything. But like Afghanistan, like Whoever got fired for Afghanistan, right? Like 20 years of like rule and leadership, right? Of the whole Afghanistan campaign. And like, you know, we saw how it ended and the, you know, now we're countries back in the, you know, it's like we were never there. Um, and this massive exercise and thousands of Americans dead and like lots of other people dead and all this like chaos and blood and the whole thing and stranded interpreters and like the whole thing. And, who, you know, who got fired? Like, you yeah. know, so yeah. So anyway, so if they're going to be the elites, they got to be good at being elites. Yeah. And so, you know, at some point, like I said, at some point, I think people just kind of get fed up. Um, and, then, and then look, the internet, you know, every, every, it's become very fashionable. And of course, nobody does this more than our current elites, but like, it's very fashionable to dump on the internet for creating division and dissension and this and that misinformation and kind of on and on and on. And the people who tell that story the most forcefully are our current elites who just absolutely hate being challenged. And like, you know, look, the internet, the internet is, you know, as you, you all know, like the internet is subject to constant censorship, censorship pressure at a level that would make Orwell blush. Um, and notwithstanding that information is still more widely available today than it was before the internet, like, but by far, right. By far. Right. And so, you know, even the, you know, the censors have had a good, you know, eight years to do everything they can. And, you know, information is still flowing. It's not flowing as free as I would like it to, to flow, but it's flowing a lot more free than it used to. Yeah. There's at least cracks uh, in the system that are encouraging. But to, to close, maybe that, that way pill relates to your tweet recently in terms of the theme of our era is uncashed checks suddenly popping up absurd pretensions, wistful fantasies, and pretty ugly lies called by called by reality. Yeah, it's like, look, if you're in power and you've got this story, right, and you can like sell these propositions and you can implement these policies, like at some point the results come in. Um, and, you know, the longer conversation we could have about this another time, but like, you know, there are 
I mean, look, just, just since the 1960s, 1970s, like there were a set of policies put in place in the 1960s, 1970s that made very specific promises. Um, and the results are in. We're 50 years later. And like, not only did it not work, they were you know, catastrophic in many ways. Um, and so like at some point, the, 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 the bill arrives. You know, it does feel like an awful lot of, you know, bills are arriving. A lot of, a lot of checks are, yeah. a lot of people are trying to cash a lot of these checks. They're not, they're not. I mean, you know, even the, even the Gates Foundation, right, did this big uh, report it's at last year where they did, they did a retrospective study of 40, year, 40 years of uh, philanthropic attempts to uh, improve education in the U.S. And, and the result of the report is nothing worked. Yeah. Right. Like 40 years of promises, nothing worked. Um, budget per, you know, per student budget of education in the U.S., K through 12, rose 3x over the last 40 years in real dollars. Results didn't budge, right? And so, like the data is there, like the, the the data's in. It doesn't work. The people running the system are terrible, um, you know, and for all the reasons that people already understand. Yeah. It's always the thing: are people more enamored by their belief in the story and in their sort of social affiliations based on the story than they are in the actual tangible reality on the other end? Um, yeah. you, you mentioned Thomas Sowell. I'll just recommend for anybody who hasn't read his books, like you, you want to definitely read like all of Thomas Sowell's books because. Maybe more than anybody else in the last 50 years, what he does is he tackles like all of these societal level questions, you know, directly. And he does it from the position of kind of, you know, it's very high level of kind of moral authority. Um, but then he's a, he's one of the you know, he's a world class economist. And so he actually goes at the data and he addresses yeah. the data and he's just like, OK, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. This doesn't work. This doesn't work. And you come out the other end being like, oh, my God, we're ruled by people who have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. Let, let's wrap on that inspiring note. The, the bill is coming due. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Good. Awesome. Eric, great to be with you. Upstream with Eric Tornberg is a show from Turpentine, the podcast network behind Moment of Zen and Cognitive Revolution. If you like the episode, please leave a review in the Apple Store. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. Get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. I believe in SecureFrame so much that I invested in it and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo and mention Upstream during your demo to get 20% off your first year. Now, more than ever, startup founders need a safe place to put their cash. Mercury protects your money and also provides the streamlined user experience that great founders expect. Through partner banks and their sweep networks, Mercury offers up to 5 million in FDIC insurance, which is 20 times the per bank limit. They also make it easy to invest any cash above the FDIC-insured amount in a money market fund. 100,000 startups trust Mercury with their finances. I've been a happy Mercury customer and have found their team incredibly helpful and responsive. They even got an important wire out of purgatory on Christmas Eve. After all, your Christmas is my opportunity. Visit mercury.com to get started. Mercury is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group and Evolve Bank and Trust, members FDIC. Marketer Hire is one of my favorite resources for growing startups looking to hire marketers. With thousands of pre-vetted marketers across a dozen roles, Marketer Hire matches you to your perfect marketer in 48 hours. Whether you need help with growth, marketing, SEO, lifecycle, content, or any other aspect of growth marketing strategy, Marketer Hire has you covered. So if you're a founder looking for top-notch marketing talent to grow your startup, head over to marketerhire.com to find your perfect match. Sign up with referral code UPSTREAM and you'll get $1,000 in credit on your first hire. Hey, it's Eric. There's no shortage of tech and business podcasts, but few actually give you a true and regular dose of the future. The A16Z podcast is the exception. It's a lighthouse for founders, breaking down the most important trends in technology and business. Struggling to keep up with the pace of change in AI? 
they just spoke to top builders from OpenAI, Anthropic, Roblox, and more, wondering what on earth is happening up in space. They just dropped a series on the satellite economy, or questioning whether recent salary transparency legislation will cause clarity or chaos. They just broke down how companies can not only survive, but thrive in this new environment. Host Steph Smith sits down with some of the world's most influential people, movers who have a track record of being both early and right, like Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, Nobel Prize-winning astrophysicist John Mather, and A16Z co-founders Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. So go ahead, eavesdrop on the future by following the A16Z podcast on your favorite podcast app and tell them I sent you.